thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith. And this week is another pandemic just around the corner. We're going to be hearing from some of the world's leading experts. The deaths, lockdowns and school closures that accompanied the global spread of COVID-19 may not seem all that very long ago, but top health officials are already busy preparing for what's going to come next. Many researchers believe that another pandemic could soon be upon us, in fact, before the end of this decade. So what can we expect? And what efforts are already being made to tackle the emergence of a deadly new agent? Peter Hotez is Professor of Paediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine. He's also the author of Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. It's a pretty glib way to begin our conversation, Peter, but what do you think the next pandemic might look like? This is, I believe, the start of of a new normal. And in terms of what's coming next, first of all, with COVID-19, remember, that's the third major coronavirus epidemic we've had just in the last 20 years. We had SARS that arose out of southern China in 2002. Then we had Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome in 2012. That's why we started working on coronavirus vaccines, because we knew a third one was around the corner. And sure enough, right on cue came COVID-19. And by that same reasoning, we should expect a fourth major coronavirus epidemic pandemic before the end of this decade. Every six, seven years, we're going to see a major coronavirus epidemic or pandemic. So that's next. I think, you know, I'm still very concerned about the zoonotic influenzas, avian or or other influenzas coming from other animal hosts. That's on their radar screen, other respiratory viruses. And very important, what we're seeing now in the southern United States and southern Europe is the rise of insect-borne infectious diseases. So that's what we have ahead of us, I think, is quite a constellation of serious respiratory illnesses together with diseases transmitted from animals. In some cases, there's overlap from there, and now insect-transmitted infectious Mm. agents. What do you think is contributing to that intensification? Because you're making the point that this appears to be happening with greater frequency and you're saying it's the new normal. Why do you think that is? From what I can see, it's climate change acting in concert with other key social determinants, including political instability, as well as aggressive urbanization, deforestation and and poverty. Let's take the Middle East, um, where because of the violence and political instability there, you first of all see a halting of immunization programs. But that's not the only thing that's going on. You have unprecedented temperatures of 50 degrees Celsius or more causing people to flee 
into larger and larger urban areas, such as Aleppo and Damascus, which outstrips the ability of the urban infrastructure to maintain safe and sanitary environments. And so you start seeing diarrheal disease and respiratory disease, and then you stop your vector control program. So you're not controlling the sandfly. So there's a massive uh, outbreaks of a disease called cutaneous leishmaniasis. So the Middle East is, is a good flashpoint area to identify how all of these 21st century forces are, are combining. If we can distill it down to a sort of formula of where the hotspots are likely to be, does that mean we've got some areas we should have our eye on around the world where these new infections could be forged? They are those crucibles that you're talking about. I think so. I mean, certainly in those those areas where we can identify the confluence of those forces. I think one of the hard parts of this is we don't have very productive dialogue between the biomedical scientists together with the social scientists and the earth scientists. And we need better cooperation be between those groups because you know, if you're a biomedical scientist, you're not typically talking to urban planners and economists and political scientists and, and sociologists to understand how those 21st century forces are working, or you're not really talking to the, the climate scientists like, like we should. So getting the various academic disciplines to start engaging in an uncomfortable dialogue. And I call it uncomfortable because the way things work in academia too often is we're silent and we're encouraged to write and speak for each other and and get and get advance our careers on that basis. We need to have better crosstalk between the disciplines because that's how these infectious pathogens are are, are working. Where do most of these emerging infections come from? What's the actual origin? Because a virus or a bacterium can't just pop into existence from nowhere. So what's the route from wherever they are into people? How do they appear in the first place? It's hard to make a general point, but you know, one of the observations is that many of these new viruses or other pathogens are what are called zoonoses, meaning that they originate in animals. Um, for instance, e Ebola, Nipah virus, coronaviruses all circulate in bats. And so as humans come into closer contact with bats, either because of uh, altered climate patterns, which are causing the bats to undergo new migration patterns, or humans are through deforestation, urbanization, coming uh, closer into contact with them, often through a second intermediate animal host, uh, so whether it's livestock or, or other animals. That seems to be uh, an important driver. So as we see human population increase, we see urbanization increase, we're going to get more of the sorts of conflicts between us and the natural world, that, that means potentially we're going to see more of these jumps. That's right. In the last few years, for the first time, more humans live in urbanized environments than in rural environments. And so I think ur urbanization is a huge one, particularly when it's accompanied by uh, political instability in those climate vulnerable areas. Based on what you've been saying, we actually clearly do understand quite a lot about what causes pandemics to emerge, the risk factors for making it more likely and where they come from. So does this mean then that, that in fact we are quite well positioned if we implement that knowledge the right way to prevent the next pandemic? We understand it in broad strokes as we've been speaking, but when it comes to actually uncovering at a very granular level how an epidemic begins, we still stumble. More often than not, we don't really understand that. 
we know, for instance, that COVID-19 began in wet markets uh, in and around uh, Wuhan, but we don't exactly understand at a granular level because we've never really done that outbreak investigation to detail it at the level that we really need. And that's where the emphasis needs to be on to be able to create uh, interdisciplinary teams, which include zoologists and ecologists and virologists and immunologists to go into areas where we think either outbreaks have occurred or where they're about to occur and do that detailed sampling. That's what we're still missing. And now with international cooperation so challenged, it's getting harder and harder to do that. That was Peter Hotez, who is also co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. So what, if anything, can we learn from our handling of the COVID-19 pandemic? I've been speaking to Michael Osterholm, who's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Michael advised President Joe Biden on COVID-19 and he's also argued that we need to learn the critical lesson of humility from the coronavirus pandemic. I began by asking him what he meant by that. As much as we as scientists want to believe that we fully understand what is happening around us from a scientific standpoint and that in fact we have the tools to make accurate predictions about what will happen, that's just not the case. And I think This virus has laid that open in a very public way. For example, how many people even anticipated that this pandemic might last three years as opposed to just a few months? Or what might happen with immunity, either that from infection or from a vaccine? And so it doesn't mean you can't make conclusions or draw conclusions from what you know, but you always need to do it with a great deal of humility and saying, this is what I know now, but I don't know what this will mean in the weeks and months ahead. Do you think that people lack humility about it then? Because many countries are holding COVID inquiries. In the UK, just this week, we've launched our module two, looking at the early responses that went on during COVID here in the UK. People do seem to be in receptive learning mode in the aftermath. I think this is critical right now to go back and do the kinds of reviews that are happening in the UK. Uh, I wish they were happening here in the United States. It's not because we're trying to point fingers or lay blame or you know, find people for which we can uh, attribute accolades to them. Rather, it's all about what will we be like in terms of preparedness for the future pandemics. This is not the last pandemic. And future pandemics could be much worse. If this were a 1918-like pandemic, the number of deaths would have been at least four to five-fold higher. Uh, when we look at the possibility of another coronavirus infection causing the pandemic, Uh, You know, we already had two viruses, SARS and MERS, which appeared in 2003, 2012. And fortunately, those viruses were not very infectious relative to the current coronavirus, but they killed anywhere from 15 to 35 percent of the people that got infected, as opposed to today, less than one percent. There's nothing to say that in the future, the ability to be transmitted and the ability to cause severe illness and death won't match up together. And so we need to be better prepared for future pandemics. And the one way we can learn about how to do that is what are the lessons learned from this pandemic? Is there not, though, a disconnect between what the politicians want, what they're prepared to spend money on, and what the scientists, the epidemiologists, the public health fraternity are advocating for? Because just looking at my lecture notes that I delivered for the medical students at the University of Cambridge back in 2007, 
a lot of what I said about emerging infections in those lectures I gave came true. And I wasn't the only one saying it. Many, many people were trying to say to the government, we need better preparedness, but they weren't listening because they were largely, I think, looking at this statistically and saying, well, look, pandemics happen roughly every 30 or 40 years. What's the chances of this happening in my political cycle when voting for me counts? Much lower. So I'm going to put that to one side. Do you not think that's a problem? I think it is a problem. And I think you've really put your uh, finger on it, what we need to address. First of all, we have to understand that the potential for future pandemics to occur more frequently is very real. Uh, You know, we have 8 billion people on the face of the earth. Uh, Roughly one out of every eight people who's ever lived is now on the face of the earth. We need food to feed that population, which means we have a very different world full of food production animals. Uh, using bushmeat from the jungles and the forests of the world uh, and so forth. And so there's just a much greater likelihood of a crossover of a virus from the animal world or other humans to causing a future pandemic. And I think that those will still continue to be largely influenza and coronaviruses would do that. But, you know, we could have another pandemic five, six, seven years from now uh, and maybe earlier. So it's not 40 years off. I think the second thing is we do have to help people understand why do we need to invest? And if you look at the economic cost of this pandemic, forget about the painful, painful number of illnesses and deaths that we saw. Just look at it as a straight out economic impact. You can see that investing in preparedness is a very, very cost effective thing to do. And I think the final point to make on that is is that we do make these decisions all the time in other ways. For example, one of the most well-funded fire departments in our state of Minnesota here in the United States actually uh, is at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. And since the inception of the airport, we have not had one major plane crash on the actual reservation of the airport. And yet we would not run that airport for a moment without that extensive fire department because they need to be there and ready to go should a plane crash. Well, you know, in a way, that's what we're like right now. You know, we can tell you that any moment another pandemic plane could crash, and we need to be prepared for that. And uh, just like we support fire departments in settings like our airports, we need to be supporting public health preparedness, healthcare preparedness uh, in ways that we have not yet really understood. What should the shape of that preparedness be? Because there's going to be an international preparedness and a domestic preparedness, and that may differ a bit around the world, obviously, but what's the broad shape of that? Well, the first thing that we have to understand is what really can make a difference in a pandemic. Uh, You know, I'm just finishing a a new book. I'm be coming out this next year on lessons learned from the pandemic. And one of the things that I review in some length are the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the idea of lockdowns, the idea of mandatory testing or mandatory vaccination, uh, the idea of what do we do with schools and so forth. And I think there's a lot to be learned there about what didn't work. You know, I was never a supporter of the classic concept of lockdowns because early in the pandemic, I made the prediction that this could easily last three years or more. And in the case of uh, the United States, I predicted we could have over 800,000 deaths in March of 2020, not a popular statement at the time. And in fact, lockdowns are the idea of temporarily keeping you from the virus and the virus from you. But it doesn't at all apply if we're going to do this for three years. You know, it people can temporarily 
you know, shelter in place and reduce their contact. But for three years, and remember, this is a zero-sum game in the end. I mean, you that's know, the game that China, the, sorry to interrupt, that, that's effectively the game that China have tried to play and, and exactly. admitted that and then, it doesn't work. Yeah, and within two months after relaxing their stringent requirements, they had 120 million new deaths occurring in China from this. So it's exactly that. And so my whole point has been, doesn't mean we don't try to flatten the curve, which is a different concept where healthcare facilities are being overrun with numbers of patients. Can we slow down transmission? So instead of having a thousand new patients this week, we have a thousand new patients over the next two months, that type of thing, but not a lockdown. And I think that's the kind of thing that we need to have a really, uh, I think, very thoughtful discussion, understanding of what did we accomplish, what didn't we, again, not to point fingers or to lay blame, but to say, do we want to do that again? Or what should we do again? You know, uh, again, you know, we, I kept hearing people talk all the time about how long would it take to get those first doses of vaccine out? And I think that's a very important mark. But even more important is how long will it take to get the last dose of vaccine out? Meaning who in the world doesn't have access to it at that point? And we didn't really do that at all. We saw many areas of the world that never had access to vaccine in the first few years of the pandemic. So uh, I think these are all the kind of lessons we want to really take to heart. And that's where our trust will come from, is if we have a very transparent and we have a very open and honest discussion, review of what did we do, what could we have done differently, what could have been done better, what really worked. And I think that would really help us both with the trust issue and it would make us better prepared for the future. Do you think we are better prepared for the future? So if COVID Mark II came tomorrow, do you think that we would rinse and repeat and make all the same mistakes again? Or we've learned the hard way and we're now going to handle it so we're much better prepared and it will be over in a flash next time? Yeah, I think uh, your concept of rinse and repeat is a very important one. And I actually uh, really like that uh, visual. Uh, The challenge we have is that It's not just what we do, but what will the public do with us? And I believe we're in worse shape right now than we were in 2020 because we have lost the trust of much of the public around making recommendations from a public health perspective. And again, public health is one of those activities that it's critical to have the participation and the support of the public in whatever you're going to do in terms of uh, trying to avoid infections, uh, you know, reducing serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. And so to me, I am more concerned right now that in this era of anti-science, uh, where the most important thing some groups can do is just demonize the personnel in the public health or medical community trying to save lives. It seems if that were you know, something we talked about five to 10 years ago, nobody would have believed it, you know, who the bad guys are. And so that's something we have to overcome for the next pandemic. Michael Osterholm from the University of Minnesota. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Now, regular listeners will know that I was pretty busy at the start of 2020 when an unknown flu-like virus first emerged in the Chinese city of Wuhan. At that time, and over the course of the next few years, I was invited to appear on national and international networks with Linda Bald, who's Professor of Public Health at the University of Edinburgh. I've been catching up with Linda and began by asking her at what stage the public should be told about the outbreak of a new pandemic, in her view. 
I think that's a difficult decision, Chris, for any government or public health agency. I've been co-chairing the behavioural and community engagement group for the Scottish Standing Committee on Pandemics. So here in Scotland, we have our own pandemic preparedness that we're now engaging in, looking ahead to future threats. Um, I think it really depends. We don't know what the next pathogen will be. But the key principle for me is transparency. So once there is an outbreak, it could be localized. Um, it could be something that people are concerned about and is picked up through health protection. It needs to start with engaging with the relevant authorities, others in um, the health service and the public health system. And then if we know that information needs to be communicated to the public because there is a potential risk, then I think it's important to do that early, not to panic people but to start that communication as quickly as possible. And I think that's one of the lessons that we've taken out of COVID, that maybe that didn't happen at the pace it should have done. On the flip side of that, though, people have criticised us, not you and me, but the scientific, medical and also political establishment, because we said things that we thought were true, then we changed our minds. Now, obviously, it's reasonable to update your understanding and update your stance, based on a changing situation and, and the acquisition of more knowledge. But people, it feels, want concrete information, not unreasonably, but that's not possible to supply all the time when you've got a dynamic and emerging situation going on. No, I think the transparency also needs to include uncertainty. So let's just use a couple of examples here. I mean, there can be E. coli outbreaks, or um, we saw concern about RSV, a respiratory virus recently, or we had MPOX in the UK that we know affected particular communities. It's about saying there's something that's arisen, there's action that the public can take, or we just want to let you know about this. But actually, we're unsure what the science is telling us. We're waiting for more surveillance, waiting for more testing until we can give you more accurate information. And in the meantime, these are the practical steps you can take. For example, engage in good hygiene practices. If it's something to do with food, you know, tell people where you've been, look for particular symptoms amongst your the people that you live with or your community, basic information, and then say, we'll update you once we know more. And I think communicating that uncertainty is really difficult for decision makers. And probably at those early stages, it needs to be public health authorities that do that before we pass on to others. Michael was saying quite alarmingly that he feels that trust has been dented quite significantly damaged because of COVID. Do you share that view? I'm a bit more optimistic maybe than Michael. I think there has been a lot of misinformation that has circulated, anti-vaccine sentiment, questioning about the measures that were taken. And let's face it, there's inquiries now that will pour over all of that. Um, but I think the public is better educated now, particularly about infectious disease and are asking more questions. I think if you look globally, though, it's not always the case to say it might be the case in the US and the UK, but I, I wouldn't say in, in some of the countries that, you know, my colleagues work in that COVID caused major distrust between government and the public. I think that bond is still strong in many places and we probably need to learn internationally about how to manage that better. So who do you think are the right sources when there is a pandemic situation? Who should be giving out that information? Because we're in our module two of the UK COVID inquiry. And there's been some quite interesting speculation and, and comment around some of the opening hands that have been played in the inquiry, including some of the things that 
Sir Patrick Vallance wrote in his diary, he was our chief scientific officer at the time of COVID, wasn't he? Saying that there was a sense that perhaps the scientists were being pushed out there in front of the government so the science could be blamed rather than the policymakers so much. Who is a good source for this sort of information? Should it come from the government? Should it come from scientists? Did we get that right during the pandemic? Well, I think there's a lot there. The first thing I would say for any government, and I work with the Scottish government, is that this is a long-running programme that needs to be in place in advance of any future health threats. Uh, The connection between authorities and the public, the connections and relationships amongst the public, inequalities between groups, kind of capacity to communicate, we need to make sure we've got that in place and we maintain it in between health threats. In relation to who should communicate, I mean, the problem with politicians doing the communicating about health issues is they are not the experts. So I think it's important that we differentiate. So we have a communication function, for example, through public health agencies, et cetera, where we say this is what we're communicating about the science. But when it comes to this is what is happening to you, the public, and these are the bits of laws or decisions that are going to impose on your lives and this is what we want you to do, that needs to come from the politicians because they are the decision makers. One thing I would say about pandemic communication, if I could have redesigned it, I would have separated out the scientific advisors and the public health experts in terms of their communication from the politicians. I don't think they should be communicating together because then it looks like the science is essentially condoning all the decisions the politicians are making. And we know that politicians were faced with very difficult decisions and it wasn't always about the scientific advice. So the approach that was taken by Number 10 Downing Street, where they had that podium Prime Minister in the middle, usually, or one of the senior cabinet ministers, flanked by usually one of the senior medical officers, chief medical officer, for example, and then one of the scientists to the other side. Would you say that was a bad mix then? They shouldn't do that again? I think if we could think about it differently, we might have press conferences with answering journalists' questions where you have that combination not necessarily broadcast on television, but I think it would have been better actually if you could have taken the politicians out of the mix and have the briefing, just a basic scientific briefing, this is what's happened today, this is what we think is going to happen tomorrow, with just the scientific advisors, without the political decision-making being rolled into it. And I think if you look at some of the approaches in other countries, it was primarily the public health agencies who communicated in a particular way, And then the governments were also passing on other information. So I think we need to think about that really carefully during future public health threats. And then the final point for me on this is locally. We mustn't forget the local context. So you have in the UK your director of public health or maybe community groups who are broadcasting through local radio. They need to get the information from the government and the public health agencies and share that with their listeners and their audience in a locally appropriate way. So it's a tiered approach. Thanks very much to Linda Bald from the University of Edinburgh. Should the next pandemic come to pass sooner rather than later, then governments and the World Health Organisation, the UN agency responsible for keeping us all well, will once again be thrust into the spotlight. I've been speaking with Maria van Kerkhove, who leads the World Health Organisation's work on emerging diseases. I asked her whether, in her view, another pandemic is inevitable. It isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when, which is why pandemic preparedness is so important for governments and organizations like mine, like the World Health Organization, 
it is important that we are ready. We are agile. We can act rapidly so that we could prevent these from happening if possible. But if we do see events like outbreaks and epidemics, we have the possibility to mitigate them, to limit their impact on a global scale. Now, people like yourself have been saying that for a very long time, but we still got caught out by COVID. Why? Well, there's a, there's a number of reasons why we were caught out. I mean, I think the world was preparing for an influenza pandemic, and influenza is something that we expect to circulate and to change and to have pandemics from. But we've never had a pandemic from a coronavirus before. And people like me here at the World Health Organization and in institutions around the world are preparing for things like this. But governments are dealing with so many different challenges for their populations. Infectious diseases are one of them. But infectious diseases emerge in the context of many other challenges um, like war, earthquakes, fires, economic crises. So it's not something that everybody is at the ready for at any moment of any day. But surely the learning points from the last three years argue we're not doing enough and we should be. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying that that's right, that we're not ready for this. And I think we have globally learned so much from the COVID-19 pandemic. We've learned that the ability to act fast and to rapidly mobilize what you have in country, whether it's about surveillance, to be able to identify cases, to make sure that they're cared for properly, to have clinical care, to have testing available, to ensure that patients who need to be treated have access to therapeutics, to make sure that we have systems in place to not only develop safe and effective vaccines, but to actually use them. So we do need governments at the ready. And I think the trauma that we've all lived through in the last three and a half years, it's still fresh in our minds, is something we have to use to propel us to keep up the momentum. The world's capacities to deal with pandemics have greatly improved in the last three and a half years. The challenge right now is the political will and the financing to keep up that momentum and to sustain the gains that have been made during COVID-19. What changes has the World Health Organization made off the back of COVID? We are a, a member state organization, which means we work for governments around the world. We work for everyone everywhere. And what we try to do is to support governments in building capacities and sustaining capacities. We are working with all countries around the world to see how their response to COVID, where they were operating in a crisis mode, how the work can be calibrated to meet the needs of COVID right now, because COVID is gone, but also the next threat that some of which we know, some of these pathogens that are circulating, but there may be a new pathogen that's out there. We've worked to increase um, capacities from a scientific level, for example, say the development of safe and effective vaccines to make sure we have better production capacities around the world, not just in high-income countries or um, in one particular part of the globe, but to make sure that there are more um, companies that can actually produce these safe and effective vaccines. And we're working not just on the scientific side, but also on the political side to have statements from political leaders to ensure that we are much better prepared for the next one. Um, and so these high-level political statements, which may not sound important to everyone, are really historic because these are commitments shown by world leaders that we have to do better the next time. It's not just about a handshake saying, you know, we, we could do better. We have to do better the next time because these 
devastating impacts that COVID-19 demonstrated showed that we have to be much more collaborative. We have to be cohesive and equitable in our approach to not only responding to pandemics, but also to preventing and preparing for them. Are all governments coming to the table and cooperating, or have we got any weak links in the chain? Are there any areas where we need to bolster our response and our presence as a, an international community, a medical community, because obviously those are the places, if they're a weak link, where they're ripe for something like this to either take hold or start in the first place. That's a very complicated and important question with many different components. Countries are coming to the table to have this discussion. We've all gone through this collectively, and there is a willingness to ensure that we leave the legacy of COVID better than we started. There are a lot of weak links, not necessarily by countries, but by topic. You know, if we look at surveillance, do we have good surveillance around the world to detect the known pathogens that are circulating or could be circulating? And the next one, the next disease X, um, as we call it, which represents an unknown pathogen. And COVID-19 was disease X. So the next disease X, we say, is out there. We've worked really hard to ensure we have better supply and chain management, better scientific achievements in terms of collaborations and addressing some of the unknowns about these pathogens, how they circulate, where they circulate, who they impact. A very big gap we have right now is around equity and access, and that is something that we need to continue to work on. So it's not only important that we have medical countermeasures, that we have diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, we have personal protective equipment. We need to make sure that the use of these life-saving interventions are available to those who need them most. We need equitable access to these materials around the world, and we have a long way to go to achieve that. One thing that you haven't put on your list there is the issue of information sharing and transparency. And the last time mm. you and I spoke to each other, you were making international headlines because you'd penned a fairly forceful piece in a major scientific publication, calling out what you saw as bad practice on the part of information sharing from China, who had not revealed quite a lot of information about what they clearly knew about the early days of the pandemic. What's happened in the aftermath, if anything, of, of you saying that? Information sharing is a critical one. We think about surveillance or we think about data gathering on patients and clinical management. All of that information that exists in a country, in a hospital, in a market, um, you could pick the location. It's only as good as it is shared, meaning that if it's kept amongst those individuals that collect that information is not shared for discussion with other disciplines, with other institutions, with other countries, we can't learn from it. We work on the foundation of strong science, collaboration, um, because none of us works alone, no matter what institution you work for or what discipline you come from, you work with others, you collaborate with others. But we need to have trust amongst individuals, between countries, between institutions, between individuals, and we need transparency. I think on a global scale, there are a lot of efforts to increase robust data collection. So better data collection, not just more, but to be able to share that in a way that leads to action. So yeah, I, I did pen a, a pretty um, strong piece, but I've been speaking like that for quite some time. We, as of the World Health Organization, we, we can only act on the information that we have. And for the most part, we have a lot of collaboration, a lot of information that is shared. 
if we think about the next pandemic, we need strong surveillance in animal populations, at the animal-human interface, in people, because many of these diseases that we're talking about are zoonotic, what we call zoonotic, meaning they transmit between people and animals. And if we don't have strong surveillance, then we don't have the ability to detect something fast. But if we don't have that information shared, we won't have any visibility on what is actually happening, which means we will not be able to limit the impact of these spillover events. And when I mean spillover, I mean the the transmission of these pathogens from animals to humans. This happens all the time and it doesn't cause an outbreak or an epidemic, but sometimes it does. And when it does, we have to be ready. And that is all we have time for this week. Join us next time. We'll be looking skywards and asking what the James Webb Space Telescope has taught us about the universe and our place in it. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and from all of us here at The Naked Scientist. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.